Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And while you turn there, I should say, um, you know, I used to argue with people about everything. Um, And it's something the Lord's really worked in me on over the years. But I will die on the hill that you can and should sing Christmas songs all year long. And so if you'd like to talk to me about that and argue until we're blue in the face, then I will be right here after the service. <laughs> um, we just sing a, sing a line that I think is so appropriate for us all times, but especially this morning. Let the amen sound from his people again gladly forever adore him. Um, what, what we're describing in that is this communal act where we are enjoying our union with Christ that, that we have with Christ but with one another. And we're united together in a confession, in faith, in this life-giving relationship that we have with Christ. And together, we are fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're looking to Jesus and seeking to worship him, being formed into his image. That's a tough thing. It's a tough thing for us to do that together, to be united together in this endeavor where we jointly bring worship to God and at the very same time be formed. Well, today we're going to be in a passage where uh, I think we are going to be doing this very thing even as this sort of thing is formed in us. And I pray that God would be gracious to do that. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through Luke 6:11. So three stories that we're going to see in the scriptures this morning. And we'll see two main points. One we are masters, masters of making our own way. We're masters of making our own way. And then two, Jesus brings a new and a better way. So be on the lookout for those two points as we read Luke 5, starting in verse 33. It's a little bit longer, so follow along with me as I read. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one will tear the new And the piece from the new will not match the old. Oh, sorry. No one tears a piece from the new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins, uh, it, it will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. 
On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there and Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. The chance to gather under it today, Father, I pray that you would speak to us. By your spirit, would you take this word and put it on our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, uh, from this, we want to see this, this first point. We are masters of making our own way. We just read about three different interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees, this, this group of religious leaders and, and teachers of the law. And in these different interactions, we see three conflicts. So Luke 5, 33 uh, shows us the first one. The Pharisees said to Jesus, The disciples of John, they fast often. And our disciples, they fast often. Yours don't. So we see this first conflict about fasting. And then in Luke 6, 1 and 2, Jesus' disciples are walking through a grain field, probably going from uh, ministry to ministry. And they take some of the grain and they eat it. And the Pharisees said, why your disciples not keep Sabbath? And then Luke 6, 6 and 7, on another Sabbath, Jesus goes to a synagogue to teach. And while he's there to teach, there's a man, uh, a man who uh, doesn't have use of his hand. And even though it's on the Sabbath, Jesus heals this man. And the Pharisees watched him so that they could accuse him. And so we see the second and the third conflicts center around the Sabbath. So in order to understand these conflicts, we need to understand why fasting and why the Sabbath were so important. For many of us, not all, but for many of us, the ideas of fasting and Sabbath are foreign. The idea that we would willfully, voluntarily withhold uh, anything from ourselves can seem strange to many of us. We live in an age and a day of plenty. 
And we are quick to satisfy our cravings in an instantaneous sort of way. And so to withhold cravings, I don't know, that's, that's an odd thing for many of us. On the other hand, to set aside an entire day of rest, to, to, to willfully rest and to keep ourselves from work, uh, for many of us, that can just seem alien. That can seem like bizarro town. Why would anybody do that when there's this whole world out there that we can go and participate in? And so these might seem strange to us. We may not have a category for these. Uh, they may not play a part in our weekly routine, but these were massively important concepts, religious concepts in the first century. The book of Leviticus commanded commanded that the people of Israel fast for one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Um, It's a way to remember God. It's a way to worship God. Also, in the Old Testament, uh, other fasts were described and called for. And, And so some of these fasts were in order to remember the destruction of Israel. Some of these fasts were to uh, um, uh, serve as a means of repenting. Some of these fasts served as a means of mourning, uh, mourning death or mourning the loss of a battle, but mourning the reality and consequence of sin. So typically people would fast, and usually this fast would be not eating from sunrise to sunset. Uh, Usually it was that period of time. Some days, sometimes it might be three days, sometimes it might be a week, sometimes in extreme circumstances it might be three weeks. But typically, people would withhold food from themselves so that they could get a better focus on the things of God or on God himself. Or they would fast in order to mourn sin. And so this became an important way to worship God for the people of God. And Sabbath was similar, but probably even more important. Sabbath rest was instituted all the way back at the very beginning in the creation story. It's what R.C. Sproul calls a creation ordinance. It's ordained rest. It's consecrated rest. God didn't need to rest. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. But for us, for our sake, he works six days and then he rests on the seventh. And in so doing, he calls his people to rest in him for one day, recognizing their insufficiency, his sufficiency to be able to provide for all of their needs. And so God called his people to rest as a way to worship and trust in him. And this was significant for the people of God. Sabbath rest, was, was one of those key ways that the people of God were supposed to differentiate themselves from the watching world. After 400 years in slavery at the hands of Egypt, God delivered his people. He delivered his people, and then he gave them the law. And, and, and at the centerpiece of that law were these commandments, and one of those key commandments is, is remember the Sabbath. And then larger law was given and, and more commandments and more instruction was given about Sabbath rest. Sometimes there are going to be longer periods of Sabbath rest where, where you don't work. And this was to 
do many things, but one of the things it was going to do is it was going to show the world how different the people of God were. And in an agrarian society, to not work the field, to not plant the seeds, to, to not sow, those are crazy things to do. And yet the people of God were to place their trust not in themselves, not in rain, not in seeds, but in God for their provision. They were to trust him. And when they did that, it was going to communicate God's glory to the world. And so this was an important means of worship. So important that as we read the Old Testament, we see that uh, Israel was terrible at keeping the Sabbath. And they continually failed at that. And as they failed over and over and over again, not keeping the Sabbath was one of the key reasons stated for why Israel was carried off into exile into Babylonian captivity. In not keeping the Sabbath, Israel revealed that they didn't trust God. And so judgment came. So, these were important concepts. It's not just like these random things that were out there. These were important Concepts, But as we go back to our story and we see the conflict that's happening, we need to recognize something that's, that's under the surface here. I think at the heart of this conflict is piety. Piety. Being reverent. Being worshipful. Being devoted. Being religious. Think about the most spiritual, religious person that you could think of. That person who who's always reading their Bible, who's always praying, who's going to the prayer meetings, who's serving, who's going on mission trips, who's that person that comes to mind for you as someone who is pious or religious or spiritual or reverent? Well, the Pharisees were a people who considered themselves to be pious, and they were not going to be out pious by anybody else. And so now the question arises, are Jesus' disciples pious? And is Jesus himself pious? That's what I think stands at the center of this conflict. See, the Pharisees, they saw these important acts of worship, fasting and keeping the Sabbath, and they locked in. They locked in. They decided to display their piety in all sorts of ways, but in particular, they especially wanted to display their piety, their, their reverence, their religiosity by fasting and through keeping the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees not only adhered to the national feast that the Old, Te Old Testament commanded, or a national fast that the Old Testament commanded, but they started fasting voluntarily throughout the week, usually at least twice a week. Before too long, that voluntary fast became uh, an expected fast. If you wanted to be pious, this is what you did. You fasted, and you fasted often. And eventually, this became even more important. It became something that became equated with righteousness. It became a way to merit righteousness. And so it was a powerful, important, uh, it played a powerful and important role in religious life in the first century. It's funny, as I've considered this story this week, I think about how much more significant uh, or, or how much more um, weight the Pharisees place on fasting than I have in my life. The first time I ever fasted, I, uh, I did a day-long fast, and I gave up halfway through it because I was so hungry. And, uh, and I went to Panera Bread 
to break this fast and I ate like several bagels because I was so hungry. And then on the wall beside me, and I, I'm not playing around, uh, the, the word glutton was written beside me. And, and, and I thought, the Lord is rebuking me in my sin right now. And I, and I went home shamed by this. And I went to tell a friend to confess my sin to him. And I said, I, I went and I ate and I broke this fast that I committed to do before the Lord. And, and it said glutton on the wall. I said, are you sure it didn't say gluten? <laughs> and, and that's how I learned what gluten is. So you can see there's a slight difference in importance that I've placed on this. So this is what the Pharisees thought of fasting, and this is how they engaged in fasting. But they did the same thing with Sabbath. It's important to know that what the disciples did on Sabbath was entirely keeping with the Old Testament law. If you read the Old Testament, uh, it's perfectly fine for the disciples to walk through these fields and and to pick this wheat and to eat it. The the law uh, makes... Um, uh, allowance for that. And at the same time, the law doesn't forbid what they did on the Sabbath. But by the time the events of our passage took place, entire books had been written by religious leaders that detailed how the Sabbath should be kept. And so extra rules were made. Extra laws were written. This is how you must meticulously keep the Sabbath. It's so important that we're going to put up walls around our walls, barriers around our barriers. And by this point, there were 39 laws, 40 plus one laws concerning the Sabbath. And the disciples came along, and in their picking of the wheat and rubbing it between their fingers and then eating it, which was permissible according to the law, according to the word of God, according according to the Torah, Nevertheless, they broke four laws according to the religious books of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees see this and they go, do you not keep Sabbath? Do you not keep Sabbath? You're not pious. You're not pious. The Pharisees see Jesus' disciples eat and drink and they don't fast like they do. They don't keep this this marker of piety and they think you're not pious. The Pharisees are putting the disciples through a piety test and they are failing miserably. They don't fast. They don't keep the Sabbath the way that they want them to. You're not pious. You aren't religious. You aren't godly. And because you're not pious, you aren't religious and you aren't godly, then what does that say about Jesus? Again, the big idea that I want us to see from this first point is that We, our people, us included, the Pharisees too, we are masters of making our own way. We're masters of making our own way. When I say way, I mean we're masters at trying to find our own way towards God and towards righteousness. We like to do things our way. We like to live according to our standards. Recently I was sitting on an incredibly very empty patio uh, of a coffee shop, drinking some coffee and reading my Bible. And these two people came out and on this very empty patio, they decided to sit right next to me in order to, uh, to test my ability to pay attention. And they came out and they began to strike up this conversation. It was clear they were, f- they were old friends and they were catching up. And this one friend began to detail 
how difficult the past year and a half had been for them. And, and all of this difficulty had centered around the tragic, unjust death of George Floyd. This, this one friend shared with her other friend how one day, one day after George Floyd had died, uh, she had uh, multiple friends call her up, text her, get in touch with her, and say, are you not going to post something on social media about this, this senseless and unjust death? And, and the person basically responded said, I'm so sad about this as I read the headlines, but, but I gotta be honest, I haven't had time to, to look at anything. Like, I don't know anything about this. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I haven't been able to digest my own opinions about this, my own thoughts, my own feelings. I'm not quite ready to kind of come down on social media and declare what I think about this. I have no idea what I think about this. And that was enough. That was enough. This led to a domino effect where this person began to lose every one of the friends that were a part of her friend group. Friends that, by her testimony, she'd been friends with for years and years. True friends, real friends. This was enough. This particular non-action could not be abided. These friends had put her through the piety test and she failed. And so there had to be consequences. You're cut off. You are not one of us. You see this sort of thing. All the time, we're so quick to cancel each each other. We're so quick to make judgments about one another. And you might expect this sort of thing from the world. It doesn't surprise me to overhear that sort of conversation happening on the patio of a coffee shop isn't this how the church is tempted to act as well? You think about masks. Some of us are so quick, so quick to point out how wearing masks is an indication that a person is being a slave to fear. And meanwhile, on the other side, some of us are so quick to point out how those who are hesitant about masks Uh, who prefer not to wear a mask, well, they're actually withholding love from their neighbor, right? It's amazing, amazing how little nuance and grace there is in these conversations. Some of the bravest people I know, I'm talking death-defying brave people, people who preach the gospel, people who would lay down their lives, who would lay down their financial security for the sake of the gospel. Some of the bravest people I know wear masks, At the very same time, some of the most loving, kind, gracious, generous people I know are hesitant about masks or who prefer not to wear masks. And and this is for a whole variety of reasons. Yet, in this little act, regardless of the rationale behind it, this little act can become a clear indicator of who is spiritual and who is not who is pious and who is not, who's in and who's out. And it's not just mass. We we could talk about so many things, right? Who'd you vote for in the most recent election? Who'd you not vote for in the most recent election? Well, that tells me all I need to know. All I need to know about who's pious and who's not, 
who's religious, and who is not. Who's your favorite author? Who's your favorite uh, online pastor? Who's your favorite political pundit? What do you think about Fox News? What do you think about CNN News? What do you think about Ben Shapiro? What do you think about Jordan Peterson? What do you think about Black Lives Matter? What do you think about vaccine mandates? These questions, the answers to these questions can tell me all I need to know for me to know if a person is pious or not pious, religious or not religious, in or out. Now, please hear me. I don't mean to advocate for some sort of third way that says that truth cannot be found, that there's not right and that there's not wrong. But what I am trying to say is, is that a ton of wisdom is required to engage these various topics. And yet the answers to these questions can so quickly become measuring sticks within the church for another person's piety or lack thereof. We measure people based on these sort of things rather than what the Bible says. We measure people's piety based on their answer to these questions rather than if the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in them, rather than their devotion to the Lord, rather than if they serve, rather than if they're generous, rather than if they're hospitable, rather than if they adore Jesus, if they love others. Do you see how there's a disconnect, how something's wrong with that equation? We could be terribly unwise in our media consumption. We we could be terribly unwise in our uh, media habits. We can sin in our support of institutions. We can sin even in how we vote, I believe. But the question remains, are we going to be a people who measure ourselves and others' piety or devotion to the Lord basis on the Bible in the word of God, or on the basis of our whims, our preferences, or anything else that comes from outside of the Bible. Grace, we live in an age where there is constant, and I mean constant, temptation to judge the status of another's heart on the basis, not of what the Bible says, but on the basis of where they line up on divisive issues. And this has been a temptation that the church has faced throughout its history. What do you think about dancing? You know, do you play cards? Do you drink alcohol responsibly? Well, just in the past hundred years, these issues have divided churches. They've absolutely divided churches. They tell me all I need to know about you. This sort of thing might fly with the world, but it's not what God has saved us to. Grace, we have been loved with a special love. A love that is patient, a love that is kind, a love that keeps no record of wrongs, a love that believes all things and bears all things, a love where people can be wrong, and when they're wrong, they can be born with, a love that doesn't cancel. We've been loved with that love, and now we are called to love others with that same kind of love. You know, there's a great irony here. Because not only is this sort of pharisaical approach to piety destructive for Christian unity, but it also betrays a hard heart towards God and toward the things of God. It might seem as if a person's being religious and making these judgments, but it actually shows how hard their hearts actually are. If we are basing our judgments on others upon the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God, then we're in a bad spot. And this passage wants to graciously 
warn us against the natural pharisaical tendency that exists within us. As we prayed earlier, we are sinners and we sin often. We need grace. We need to be aware of our propensity towards sin, our propensity towards making rules, of making our own way. And so when we read the Bible, we need to remember that we're not the hero of the story. We're not Jesus coming in here and confronting the Pharisees and winning the day. No, we see a glimpse of our hearts in the Pharisees' hearts, and we're invited to see our heart for what it is and be warned in love against pursuing that way. And instead pursuing another and better way. And so we try to make our own way and that often leads us wildly astray. We try to make rules upon rules and and that leads us only further away from God. So the question becomes, well, if our way isn't the right way, then what way is? Where do we go? We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. Jesus brings a new and a better way. It's our second point this morning. So we have these three conflicts where the Pharisees are calling into question Jesus' piety uh, or his devotion to God because Jesus isn't playing nice with their extra rules where fasting and Sabbath are concerned. So how does Jesus respond? That's the key question. How does Jesus respond in the mix of this conflict? Probably not like we would expect. We see Jesus' first response, or for Jesus' response to the first conflict about fasting in chapter 5, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast when you're at the wedding. Before your face stands the groom. That's not the time for fasting. That's a striking image, right? Last year, I officiated Jordan and Sarah Moore's wedding. And leading up to the wedding, I was a little bit nervous about fitting into my suit before that wedding. And so leading up to that wedding, I had to be meticulous. I had to be strict because I did not want to embarrass myself up in front of everybody. At the wedding... I can assure you, I ate a ton of cheesy potatoes. They were so good. Why? Because the wedding is not the time for fasting. It's the time for celebrating, right? Remember the purpose of fasting. It's a way we draw near to God. It's to heighten our awareness of God, his presence, and and our need for him. It's a way to get a clear focus of God. And Jesus says, I'm here. How much more in focus can I get? Think about it this way. When you are um, preparing for a house guest to come over to your house, what do you do? You clean, you, you cook, you put on a candle, you, you organize, you straighten up, right? But what do you do when the house guest get there? gets there? Do you keep cleaning? Do you keep cooking? Do you keep putting out candles? No, you enjoy their company. You, you fellowship with them, you sit with them, you enjoy a meal together, Right? Jesus essentially says to the Pharisees, why would my disciples mourn and go without? They are at the party. Now is a time for feasting and not for fasting. It won't always be that way. It won't always be that way. I will will go. Jesus is heading to the cross here. 
And there will be a time where he goes and he ascends to the Father and he won't be with his disciples bodily. And that will be a time to fast. That will be a time to withhold so that we can, we can strengthen this, this gaze and focus upon God. But not right now. Now is a time for joy. Now is a time to party because I am here. That's what Jesus says. What about the second story? In this story, Jesus' disciples pick some heads of wheat while they're traveling on the Sabbath because they're hungry. The Pharisees see this, they measure it against their rules, and of course, tisk tisk, Sabbath breakers. You're not pious, you're not religious. And so the Pharisees confront Jesus, how could your disciples do this? That's so terrible. Sabbath breakers. How does Jesus respond? Jesus recounts 1 Samuel 21 from the Old Testament. There, David and his men, they were hungry and they had no way to provide for their needs. And realizing their great need and recognizing that they had no means of meeting that need, David goes to the tabernacle, to this very special place, this holy place. And there he takes the bread of the presence and he takes it and he eats it, and he gives it to his friends, and they eat as well. And here, Jesus acts as a teacher. And in this lesson, he is, he is teaching something from the greater to the lesser. David's actions would have been far more obviously wrong. He's going, and he's getting a very special kind of bread, the bread of the presence, a holy bread, a consecrated bread, a set-apart bread that's reserved for a very strict few amount of people but he's taking it and he's eating it. And just like David and his men, their needs were, were met, Jesus is coming along and he's saying, look, our needs were legitimate. And, and so we sought to meet them. And when Jesus does this, what he's doing is he's rebuking the Pharisees. He's rebuking their hard heart that would prioritize their strict adherence to the rules, the above and the beyond rules, rather than seeing the legitimate need that David and his men experienced and now that Jesus and his disciples experienced. And so there's a rebuke in this story. A similar sort of thing happens in the third story. The Pharisees watch Jesus closely to see if he'll heal a man who can't use his hand which means that he most likely can't work and provide for his family. He's in a terrible spot. And again, Jesus teaches. And in so doing, he rebukes the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who ironically are actually working to destroy, they're plotting, which is against their own rules, on the Sabbath. Jesus teaches them, and, and, he, and he lays their heart out and says, you prioritize your strict adherence to the law rather than using the Sabbath for what it's meant for, which is to love and care for others. What Jesus says, the Sabbath is not a piety-keeping contest. It's not a piety-displaying contest. No, it's a chance to rest in God and his gracious provision. What's a more beautiful picture of the gracious provision of God than God himself healing a man in need? So what's going on in these stories? I think the big point in all of this, the big point could be summed up in Jesus' words in Luke 6, verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man 
is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is how Jesus responded to the Pharisees confronting him about his disciples not keeping the Sabbath, not fasting, their seeming lack of piety. As outlined in their books, Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is, if there has ever been a, uh, a drop the mic, uh, a, a, a shocking response, a showstopper response, a cut the track sort of response, this is it. There's so many things we could say, but I want to highlight a, a couple things as we consider this statement that Jesus says. First, have this clear in your head, I beg you. Jesus says something here about his identity. He says something about his identity. Who is the Lord of the Sabbath? Just some guy? Just some moral teacher? No. Jesus is referring to himself, and he ascribes these, these, um, these titles to himself, the Son of Man, hearkening back to Daniel, and the Lord of the Sabbath, He assigns to him these titles that are divine titles. Here Jesus says, the Lord of this very special day that the Pharisees seek to protect, he is that Lord. Earlier Jesus said that he is the bridegroom that fasting anticipates. Jesus here is making the very very simple and very important point that he is God. He is God. Jesus' divinity is proclaimed loudly and clearly from these verses. And I urge you to, to let these sort of passages get into your heads and get into your hearts. We, I think we need to be a people, especially in this day and age, who are prepared and ready to, to go back to these sort of verses and remember Jesus' true identity when his identity is challenged in our world, when we're tempted to doubt who he is. Let this be one of those verses that blesses your soul. Jesus is God. He is the son of man and he is Lord of Sabbath. That's the first thing I want you to see from the second though, as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus tells us who has authority in these conflicts. Who has the final word? The Pharisees and their traditions and their religious books? No. Jesus. Jesus possesses the authority in this conflict. He possesses authority to interpret and to explain the Sabbath because it's his. He owns it. It's not the Pharisees to do with with it what they want. No, it belongs to him. They think that, that his disciples' lack of piety says something about him. The Sabbath belongs to him. He could do with it what he will. You know, there's a reason we call Sunday the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. It's not our day. It's not a day for us to do whatever we please. No, it belongs to God. This is the day that Jesus was raised on. This was the day where we celebrate Christ, where we gather to rest in Christ because it belongs to him. And so what we have to realize here is Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, he becomes the point of the Sabbath. Jesus is the point. And the Sabbath, is the Sabbath about fasting and rule keeping? No, it's about drawing near to, communing with God, experiencing God. 
And so in their quest for piety, the Pharisees massively miss the point. Jesus is the point. That's what we see in these verses. Jesus is the point. I think this sort of idea is illustrated from this passage in the parable at the end of Luke chapter 5. After Jesus tells the Pharisees that his disciples don't need to fast because the bridegroom is with them, he tells them a parable. In that parable, Jesus says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. And you don't put unshrunk cloth on an, on an already shrunken cloth. So what's Jesus saying here? At a fundamental level, Jesus is saying that there is an incompatibility with the old and the new. There's an incompatibility with the old and the new. If you try to keep the old and the new, then you will lose both. If you put new wine into old wineskins, old wineskins that, that have already been stretched out, the new wine's going to go in, it's going to ferment, it's going to expand. The wineskins aren't going to have anywhere to go and they're going to bust. In the same way with cloth. If you, if you have a, a ripped pair of jeans that have already been shrunk and you take a new piece of cloth and you put them on those jeans, but that piece of cloth hasn't been shrunk, eventually that new piece is going to shrink. The new jeans aren't going to have anywhere to go and it's going to rip. And what happens? Old wine, new, old wine skins, new wine, both ruined. Old cloth, new cloth, both ruined. When Jesus comes along and he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm the bridegroom at the wedding, he's saying, I'm ushering in a new age, a new era, a new way of doing things. In this new age, with this new way of doing things, it isn't compatible with the old ways of Pharisaical religion. You just can't take my new ways and put it on top of the old ways and expect it to work. If that happens, then everything goes wrong. It doesn't work. Jesus isn't going to play around with these extra man-made rules that people use to merit God's favor. It's Jesus' way or no way. One time I ordered a pizza, a, 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 a jalapeno pizza from BJ's. And they, for some terrible reason, decided to make a pickle pizza and give it to me. And the pickles were like in the cheese and in the sauce. And I remember taking the first bite of that pickle pizza. I should have known something was off when I first smelled it, but I didn't trust my nose and I took a bite and it was the worst thing that I've ever tasted in my life. And I remember kind of you know, making a face and saying this is terrible. And people saying, well, just pick the pickles out of it. But, but the pickles were baked into the pizza in such a way where there was no dividing these two things. The glorious pizza was ruined by these pickles. Jesus is coming along and saying the old and the new, they don't work. They're not compatible. My ways and your ways are not compatible. It's my way. It's my way. And Jesus is firm on this. Why? Because the old way, it keeps people from him. It keeps people from it. It keeps people from enjoying him. These rules would make disciples fast when they should feast. 
They would make his disciples go without when they could experience his gracious provision in real time, in technicolor. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who has authority. He's the point of fasting. He's the point of Sabbath rest. And now he's inviting his own to a new way of joy and peace and plenty where he is the point, where he is the object of their worship. Grace, there's a sort of man-made religion that would keep us from communion with Christ, that would keep us from experiencing what has been offered to us in the gospel, that keeps us focused on what we bring to the table. And man, it is so tempting. I get so convicted when I consider my own life. I consider how often I can can mindlessly pursue strict adherence to the law and in so doing make mountains out of molehills. I can be so pharisaical in the way that I approach life. And you have to know this, that's not just a me thing. We are not beyond legalism. We are not beyond having a pharisaical heart. This passage, it graciously warns us that we too can miss the point. We could be consumed with making our own ways, ways that may make a lot of sense in the moment, but ultimately miss the heart of God. And meanwhile, this passage gives us the opportunity to gaze upon the Lord of the Sabbath and to follow in his ways, better ways, better ways that lead us to Jesus himself and to the fullness of life that we have in Christ Jesus. And so the question we're left with is, is whose way will it be? Whose way will it be? Will we we be guided by our own ways and our own ideals of personal piety? Will we place ourselves in the position of authority where we could become judge of what is good and what is right? Or will we embrace Jesus' good and better way that leads us to Jesus? Will we experience the way himself? It takes a lot of wisdom. I don't mean to to give simple answers to complex questions. We certainly need the wisdom of the Lord for this, but my prayer for us is that we would rest in the Lord of the Sabbath. Not in ourselves, but in the Lord of the Sabbath. Not working for his divine favor, but realizing that that favor is already upon us because of the gospel. And so may the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, today that you would give us grace upon grace. Lord, we are so prone to have those sort of hearts that that seek to make rules and laws and place them upon rules and laws and then measure others by those standards rather than allowing the scriptures to guide us and guide us to Jesus. Lord, would you give us grace? Would you give us wisdom so that we can navigate this life according to your spirit and your desire for our lives? Lord, apart from you, we have nothing. Apart from you, we're adrift at the sea. So would you help us And in so doing, Lord, I pray that we would find you and rest in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.